I wonder how many of us have been told by our parents or by our children or by friends that you don't need to go to church to be a Christian. Or the more general version of the same sentiment. You don't need to be religious to be good. That idea may have seemed scandalous in Puritan Massachusetts 400 years ago, or in the Bible Belt 40 years ago. But it seems commonplace these days. In the battle of good versus right, of ethics versus theology, of love versus law, love seems to have won the day. Ethics have triumphed. Good is what we all want. Rightness and theology and legality are good if we can have them too, but they all seem secondary, instrumental of achieving the other greater goods. What do we do when the law of revealed religion seems to run up against the love of human hearts. As Jesus was nearing the midpoint of his earthly ministry, that seemed to be what was happening between him and the leaders of revealed religion, the rabbis. But is that really what was going on? This morning we're going to look at a couple of encounters that Jesus had with the professionally religious of his day. And we want to examine them more closely and see what we can learn about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. We're in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 12. You'll find that on page 816 in the Bibles provided. As you turn there, let me just remind you that we've been studying through Matthew's Gospel. It's an account written by a first century disciple who was with Jesus it tells of Jesus' birth, his baptism, uh, his beginning of his public ministry. It has his famous first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, in it, in chapters 5 to 7. And then in chapters 8 to 11, there's teaching where he was particularly uh, grooming the disciples that he had selected to be with him as he teaches them what it means to follow him and represent him. And then today we come to chapter 12. We're right at the beginning of chapter 12, right after that beautiful call we considered last week of Jesus to all those who are weary and heavy laden to come, and he would give them rest. How appropriate is it that after making that call, Jesus has now these two encounters about the day of rest, about Sabbath, about what the rest is that was commonly on offer. In our passage here at the beginning of chapter 12, hunger and a misshaped hand become harbingers of hope for helpless sinners like you and me. Chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. 
His disciples were hungry. And they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He's quoting there from Hosea chapter 6. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy, like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Well, in our passage, we have a lesson in verses 1 to 8, an example in verses 9 to 13, and a contrast in verse 14. A lesson in verses 1 to 8, an example of that lesson in verses 9 to 13, and then a contrast in verse 14. I pray that as we look through this passage, your mind will be clarified by the truth and your heart will be filled with hope. Let's dive in. Look with me at the lesson first in verses 1 to 8. The lesson is what we should think about the disciples' hunger. Matthew begins with this incident here in verse 1, hungry disciples uh, plucking and eating on the Sabbath. It's kind of like drive-through on a trip. They're walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath. We see in verse 1, his disciples were hungry. They began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. So just to be clear, the Sabbath was Saturday. This had been established from the very earliest times in Israel's history as a day of rest, reflecting God's own rest on the seventh day after the completion of his work of creation. It was entrusted to Israel, especially in the fourth of the Ten Commandments, as a sign that they were God's special people. It was reinforced with a good bit of further instruction in the Old Testament for keeping that one day particularly holy. And here was an example of a place where teachers after the Old Testament Scriptures 
and up into Jesus' own day, had planted what they called a thick hedge of rules around this law to prevent Jews from violating it. They wanted them to never even get close to violating it so that it would be kept pure. And that's really where the Pharisees in verse 2 come in with their misinterpretation. They said that what the disciples had done in this instance was not lawful. Look at verse 2. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, to Jesus, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, we need to understand what's going on. It's a little different than in our day and age. We think a lot about private property these days in America. It seems a little strange to us walking through somebody else's field just grabbing stuff to eat. You know, Augustine in his confessions uh, confesses that he took apples when he was a kid that was from somebody else's tree. Well, in ancient Israel, there were, there were understandings that you could take simple amounts for you as an individual as you traveled just going through somebody's field. That was not considered stealing. Stealing was not the issue here. Uh, you can go to multiple places in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, or think of Nathan Knight's sermon two weeks ago, Ruth. Remember Ruth, and how, how the Boaz left the corners of the field? That was common among the Jews, among those who were observant. Uh, they were kind to the hungry to try to think of how they could help them. So the point here was not stealing. That is not what the Pharisees were objecting to. The point is working on the Sabbath. That was their concern. That's where they thought that the disciples of Jesus were doing something illegal. Now, Jesus' disciples had already been drawing comment from others by some strange things they did or didn't do. You remember John the Baptist's disciples a few weeks ago we looked at. They came to Jesus' disciples and said, you're not fasting like the rest of us fast. What's going on? And Jesus, Jesus explained that it wasn't time for his disciples to fast. It would be inappropriate. This was the time when the bridegroom had come. This is the time for feasting. Well, we can easily see here something similar going on. Uh, this is the first time the Sabbath is mentioned in Matthew's Gospel. It becomes a center of controversy between Jesus and his religious, uh, his religious opponents. And I think these passages can be a little strange for us here in the States to read these days because the Sabbath feels very remote uh, to a lot of Americans, I think, today. It seems strange in our culture. But if you go back to the first century, if you study and understand, you see that this was an important symbol. It, it set Israel apart from other nations. It was like a, a wedding ring, something that was publicly so obvious. Raise your hand if you know that Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday. Just raise your hand if you know that. Okay, guess what? Everybody knew that Israel was closed on Saturday. The whole thing, not, not just Chick-fil-A, but the whole thing just closed down from sundown on Friday until sundown on Saturday. It was closed. And if the Jews had dispersed, as many of them had, and they were living in Alexandria, Egypt, or in Athens, or Rome, or Corinth, or Ephesus, Guess what the Jews didn't do on the Sabbath? Work. And everybody knew it. They might be a leading merchant of the town in this trade or that trade, but you could not trade with them on the Sabbath. So this was an incredibly important marker 
of Jewish identity. It was a sign of the covenant that God had given them specially with Moses. And he really did protect the Sabbath from becoming just another day in the week. There were sharp penalties in the law, even death penalties for its violation. I wonder if these Pharisees were thinking of Exodus 34, 21. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In the plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. So the Lord had made very clearly this day an important memorial for himself among his people. He took it seriously, and so should his people. But, friends, these Pharisees here provide us with an, exempt, an excellent example of how we can misunderstand the Bible. We can study things a lot and with sincerity and still be off. Whether lulled by long tradition or blinded by subtle self-interest or some combination of these, the Pharisees seemed unable to understand the Scriptures at least at this point as clearly as did Jesus and his apostles. Friends, when you're coming to a conclusion in reading your Bible that's entirely unique, I think mistrusting yourself is not a bad instinct. Mistrusting ourselves to be completely right always, it's one of those same lessons many husbands learn early in marriage. It's also good when you're reading the Bible. You can be right many, many times in reading the Bible. It's a perspicuous, a, a clear statement of truth, of doctrine, a clear book. And yet that doesn't mean we get everything right in it, that we don't have any self-interest operating. That's why we're so thankful to God for local churches. He calls us to be in that will help to balance us and to instruct us and encourage us and model for us how things should be done, including how the Bible should be understood. Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, the Pharisees had worked hard to popularly catechize the Jewish people on what it should mean to keep the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees had said that there were 39 specific classes of work that were forbidden on the Sabbath. And one of those was reaping, and another one was preparing food. And both of these, the Pharisees were suggesting the disciples had violated reaping by plucking the ear and, or the head of grain and preparing by sort of probably rolling it in their hands. So they had both reaped and prepared food on the Sabbath, which they are not supposed to do. Perhaps an exception could be made if they were starving, but even if they were very hungry, they were not to do this on the Sabbath. Well, in this case, there was no life-threatening reason they had to reap and prepare food on the Sabbath. So to them, the Scripture's ceremonial law, to the Pharisees, the Scripture's ceremonial law seemed just as fundamental and significant as the moral law. But the Pharisees weren't taking everything into account. They were especially not understanding what time it was in salvation history. As Jesus had just explained to John's disciples back in chapter 9, this was no time for fasting, but for feasting, because the bridegroom had come. The Pharisees' inability to see the superiority of the moral law, the law that showed the value of the human made in God's image, was part of the way they exalted the ceremonial law 
to an equality with the moral law, which really distorted their vision and made them blind to Jesus. No wonder they didn't recognize Jesus as God with us. They so little knew God. But Jesus was just about to correct their misunderstanding. And here in very short steps in verses 3 to 8, he goes through the history, the law, and the prophets. He takes three portions of their scriptures and teaches them this simple lesson throughout the book that they claim to be masters of. He corrects their understanding of what God demanded. Look again at verses 3 and 4. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence? This story is in 1 Samuel 21. You can look it up there at the beginning of the first few verses of 1 Samuel 21. Which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Jesus is referring to this well-known incident where David takes the holy bread, the bread of the presence, as it's called, that stands or that sits there in the, in the, before the altar in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And here Jesus pointed to the books of history as supporting what the disciples had just done. Then in the story of David, there was the bread of the presence, which the Lord had asked to be set before him regularly in the tabernacle. The priests would change it every week on the Sabbath. So here you had the confluence of of two different streams of special concern for the Jews. Ceremonial cleanness, especially set-aside holiness of certain items used in the formal priestly worship of God in the tabernacle, later in the temple. And, on the other hand, the concern for the Sabbath. Now, generally, the Jews were very careful to prepare their food ahead of time, ahead of the Sabbath. Uh, They wanted to be prepared to entertain Should they have additional folks on the Sabbath with no way then to prepare additional food? As Jesus alluded to this story of David and his companions eating the bread of the presence, he was showing them that special circumstances should be taken into account. This was a story about David, the anointed king of Israel. And the need of David and his companions was to outweigh the normal restrictions, said Jesus. So too, Jesus was implying was his own and his disciples' situation. If their presence could appropriately cause a suspension, the, David and his followers, if their presence could appropriately cause a suspension of the regular rules about how the holy bread should be disposed of, how much more then the presence of Jesus should be able to show that his disciples were innocent when they were simply taking common objects of food along the way. Note how bold Jesus is being in dealing with the Pharisees here. Twice here in verse 3 and again in verse 5, he uses that pointed phrase to the master Bible teachers of the day. Have you not read? He goes right to their own authority to show them. He questions them at the very point of their supposed strength. So then in verse 5, he turns from the history books there in verse 3 and 4 to the very books of the law itself. And here Jesus pointed out how the very priests themselves both depicted and evidenced mercy as they went about their duties on the Sabbath. Look again at verse 5. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Now, i got to tell you, ancient Greek and Hebrew didn't have like quotation marks of irony. But I think when Jesus says profaning the Sabbath, I don't think he thinks they were profaning the Sabbath. I think he's taking the sort of crooked, distorted fences about the law 
and applying it to what God had commanded the priest to do. And he's saying, look, by your rules, the very thing God clearly requires of them in the Bible would be them profaning the law. I think he's using that ironically, giving it back to them. I don't think Jesus really thought they were profaning the law. These priests were doing just what the Lord's very laws required of them. But by the overly stringent corset of practices that these Pharisees were teaching and put on the people, they would turn these holy actions into profane ones. Could they not see a problem in the way that they were trying to respect God's law? How they really ended up twisting God's law and disregarding God's people in the process. These Pharisees had so absolutized the Sabbath that they couldn't even really understand what God was doing in the temple and the tabernacle. But Jesus, Jesus had come as the very bringer of mercy himself. And he was therefore greater than any mere preview or picture of that very mercy that he would procure. He was, as he was saying here, say in verse 6, greater than the temple. On one level, this was a shocking statement to hear. The temple was one of the great buildings in, in the world at the time. And who was Jesus? He was an itinerant rabbi. Didn't even, have, didn't even have proper training. But nevertheless, Jesus explained here in verse 6, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. All that the temple offerings proclaimed about the holiness of God, about His patience, about His goodness and His rightness, and the inventiveness and creativity of His love, and the goodness of the claims of justice that were never to be abated, but to be satisfied by another in place of the guilty. All of these things Jesus Himself uniquely embodied. So if the priest's Sabbath work could be explained and allowed, how much more the work of Jesus and his disciples. So Jesus had taught them from the books of the law and of history. Now he would complete his lesson to them by turning to the prophets. And the Lord, through the prophets, had said explicitly that he more desires mercy than sacrifice. He quotes Hosea 6.6 for the second time in Matthew. He's quoted it not long before this when he first called Matthew, and he was questioned on that by the Pharisees. And the Lord is so clear in Hosea about what his priority is. Look here in our passage at verse 7. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. The guiltless there is in the plural. That's a reference to the disciples that they had said were guilty of breaking the law as they were going through the field and taking the grain. Jesus had already quoted this saying when he was explaining uh, back in chapter 9, verse 13, why he was acting toward Matthew the tax collector as he was. Friends, our God is a good God, and he has always been about true virtues and none that we need more than mercy. Friends, this is why we who are followers of Christ live as we do. This is why we pray as we do. 1 Timothy 2 says that I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. 
This is why we have the pastoral prayer that we just had every Sunday where we pray like this. This is why we care as we do for all of those made in God's image. We shouldn't be marked by a hard pharisaical legalism that is both tons of work and it doesn't work. It never succeeds in representing God well, let alone in pleasing Him. As followers of Jesus, we study God's Word so that we can know His will and explain it to others, especially to those who claim to be speaking for Him and who have clearly misunderstood Him. We want to please God by serving those around us in mercy. That person may not deserve to be invited over to your house for lunch, but you can still have them over to your house for lunch. You can still have a good conversation with them. Still initiate love toward them when you owe them nothing. That person who just cut you off on 395, and now, lo and behold, in the strange providence of God, in the flow of traffic, you're three cars ahead in the left lane, you see them signaling to one over, you can graciously let them over. You're going to be, what, two seconds later for your next delay in traffic? That can be worked into the very character of a Christian. This understanding that we are people who have been profoundly affected by being treated in a way that we ourselves have not deserved. And so we can be marked as people who want to bring pleasure to God by showing mercy to those made in His image. As followers of Jesus, we study God's Word so that we can know His will and we can explain it like this. And so we want to serve others in mercy. I hope you see that in this congregation. I see it all over the place. We have people who are ready to, to point us to books that will help us, who will help us work on how we spend our money together. So we've got a budget meeting at 3.30 this afternoon for all the members who want to come. I'll see you both there. But it's, uh, it's a <laughs> 3.30, an extra meeting on a Sunday, you know? Uh, but we, we want to be able to talk together with people who are members of the church who want to be able to think about how are we best spending our money together. We, we have brothers and sisters who, who try to think through issues of security, of helping those who are physically challenged in various ways to more easily join us in public worship. We, we have so many who work to care for our children and to minister to them and who reach out to college students and newer people. And I could go on and on about the way we as Christians in, in just this local church, and it's true of, of all local churches, are trying to do things to serve others, to follow the example of Christ in reaching out to others and providing for others. And you understand why the Lord would say this, don't you? The purpose of sacrifice, I mean, about Him preferring mercy to sacrifice. What's the whole purpose of sacrifice in the Old Testament system? It's to point to the sacrifice that will do what? Provide mercy. Mercy is the point of it all. So Jesus was teaching here that even the Sabbath's rest would serve the ends, the purposes of His mercy. It was a day given in merciful love out of a recognition of our simple need for rest. It was a day of His mercy. You see clearly 
even in the thing that we were considering that we read together, how God acts in mercy. You see here he says in verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is the most amazing statement Jesus has made in the Gospels. Now the Son of Man is an exalted title from Daniel chapter 7. It's one who has been given all authority. Jesus just told us in the prayer that we looked at last week in Matthew eleven twenty-seven that the Father had given, had handed all things over to him. Thirty times in Matthew's Gospel he calls himself Son of Man, or he is called Son of Man. Already he's demonstrated this authority in a remarkable way in chapter 9 by forgiving sins and by healing someone's paralysis in their legs. But then, as if that's not enough, he goes on, he calls himself here in verse 8, the Lord of the Sabbath. And I'm not sure a more exalted title could be found. Because we know whose the Sabbath is from Genesis 2-3. It's the Lord God's. It was set up by Him when He completed His work of creation of this world. While Jesus did teach that the Sabbath was for men, it only belonged to one person as the Lord of it. And that would be God Himself. Friend, Jesus makes no clearer claim to divinity than this one here. So if you're visiting here today and you're not a Christian, and you've been told by some scholarly New Testament prophet, your university, uh, or some Muslim friend, that Jesus never claimed to be God, because you don't read Jesus saying, I am God, that is at best a facile, that is an overly simple, so overly simple as to be false, That is a facile statement. Because when Jesus in the first century said, I am Lord of the Sabbath, there is no one who misunderstood what he meant by that. There is a reason why for the first time in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 12, we're about to come to the verse where it says they conspired together to destroy him. Because they realized all of a sudden what this guy was claiming. Skeptics today may not. New Testament profs who get paid to shock 18-year-old college students may not. But my friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're just trying to do good scholarship, I hope you'll understand that Jesus very clearly claimed to be God. And in no way clearer than this, when he claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath. And as the Lord of the Sabbath, he has the right to dictate what are the proper Sabbath observances. This is a theme that Jesus is going to return to in different occasions in the Gospel. He's not only greater than David whose friends could even eat the showbread, you know, in the tabernacle without guilt. He's not only greater than the temple, but he is even greater than the most ancient of the marks of the, Israel, of the Israelite people, the Sabbath itself. So, please understand who Jesus teaches that he is. And friend, again, if you're not a Christian, I would urge you to believe Jesus. He is more trustworthy than any person who has ever spoken to you. I have no fear that statement can be contradicted. Believe him. My Christian brothers and sisters, our rest today is shown not so much by what we don't do as by what we are and do in Christ. You can go read Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 this afternoon and explore a little bit more understanding of the Sabbath rest there is for us as the people of God. This is the rest that we enter in Christ. We rest from our works as God did from His. Our resting in Christ is shown by our love for God 
and for others. All of this is from the lesson which Jesus taught that day because of the false accusation of the Pharisees against his innocent disciples. And so Jesus instructed the Pharisees and us about himself, really, and his role from the books of history. He's greater than David and from the law. He's greater than Moses and Aaron and the priests and the temple itself. And even from the prophets, he is the one who desires mercy rather than sacrifice. He is the Son of Man who is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now that's, that's the bulk of the teaching, of the, the lesson. This is the, the theological heart of what Jesus is saying on that Sabbath day in these encounters. But look with me now at the second example, uh, the second incident we find, which really ends up being an example of what he's just said here in verses 9 to 13. And of course it all starts from that man's hand. The hunger of the disciples, the first incident, this withered hand in the second. This is another incident recorded here in verses 9 and 10. This man with a withered hand at the synagogue on a Sabbath. Look at verse 9. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. People have said, why does he say their synagogue? I'm not sure. Maybe feeling alienated from the people in Capernaum who weren't believing. Maybe the Pharisees were particularly responsible for it. I'm not sure. You can tell me your ideas at the door. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. Now, we don't read this circumstance was pointed out by Jesus, but by presumably these same Pharisees, because of their eagerness to show what was really another misinterpretation, another misapplication of God's law, that it was not lawful to heal on the Sabbath. So look at their question in verse 10. Second half, verse 10. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? One of the things that I enjoy about preaching through the Gospels is, you know, when I read history, it just becomes like a movie in my mind. You know, you can, I can just see it. And the danger there is that you overinterpret, you, you put in things that aren't there. You don't want to do that with Scripture. But I can't help but wonder here about exactly what the situation was. Did these teachers realize the opportunity that presented itself to them with Jesus in the synagogue, but not only that, with that man with the withered hand right there, because this is the exact kind of case that seemed to elicit Jesus' sympathies and concern. So did they see a kind of kryptonite weakness in Jesus that this withered hand would bring out of him and he would heal on the Sabbath which was forbidden in the rules that they had written to hedge around the fourth commandment. The man's hand was withered but just like with the previous account there was no suggestion here that the man's life was in danger. There's no mortal urgency. No one objected to working on the Sabbath to save a man's life. The Pharisees wouldn't object to that. But here, a man's life was not in danger. And as we said, Sabbath violations are very serious. Exodus 31, 14, Everyone who profanes the Sabbath shall be put to death. 
Now that said of the Sabbath, profaning the Sabbath, not profaning all the fences that the Pharisees had set up around it, like specifically not trying to heal someone on the Sabbath. There's nothing about that. Now, perhaps we sit here today not so much concerned with the Sabbath, but very concerned about our property. Perhaps more concerned about our wealth than we are about other people. But Jesus will have something to teach all of us here as we listen to the Lord of the Sabbath. Give us the correct understanding of the law in these three verses 11, 12, and 13. Jesus begins by appealing to their common sense as he gives a kind of insta-parable in verse 11 of, of the slipped sheep on the Sabbath. Verse 11, he said to them, which one of you has a sheep if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not take hold of it and lift it out? You see, he just quickly comes up with this like one-sentence parable. It's an illustration, but it's a, it's, it's a small parable. He keeps the Sabbath because that's their concern, but he masks the man as a sheep. In fact, the sheep that they own, clever move there. That gives an immediate self-interest. And he replaces the non-life-threatening withered hand with the non-life-threatening fall into a pit. Presumably the kind of pit that we could simply wait for the Sabbath to end in a few hours and then pull the sheep out. Because again, if it were a life-threatening thing, they wouldn't have objected to it. So the whole power of this trades on the fact that hey, he just fell. He'll be fine. <laughs> we'll get a couple of friends when the sun goes down. And it was apparently common practice to present no objection to people rescuing fallen animals, even on the Sabbath. So Jesus applied their ancient practice to their current inhumane condemnation of mercy expressed on the Sabbath, and Jesus corrects them. And he uses their own common sense to do it. And then Jesus reasons with them theologically to establish the correct ethics that they should have there in verse 12. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? This is not advanced ethics. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now again, remember, the Sabbath was meant for the benefit of people, even animals. Did you notice that when we read that passage earlier from Exodus 23, verse 12? God cared even for the rest the animals would have. And we know that people are more valuable than animals. So the Bible's funny when it comes to animals. A little quick digression here. Some of you extremely intense Christians see pets as enemies of world missions. <laughs> Unnecessary expenditure of funds, give it to missionaries. I understand the logic. Are not people worth more than animals? Yes. I will just point out a consistent theme in the Old and the New Testament is God's care for animals. You know, when he's talking about all the greatness of Nineveh, when Jonah has gone there to condemn them so that they'll repent, he doesn't just mention how many people are there, he mentions how many cattle are there. Or in what we just read from Exodus 23, he cared for those animals. We can again and again find evidence in Scripture, about Proverbs talking about, you know, it's a good thing to care well for your animals. So God cares about animals. And yet, lest the pets' rights people are getting very excited, and yet, Scripture does not present people as animals. 
Scripture is very clear that we are made in the image of God in a way no animal is. We have a value and a worth inestimably above that of an animal. So you have to have a little you know, refinement in your thought here. Animals are not nothing. Animals are not equal to people. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, look, people are more valuable than animals. And when he said that, that statement was not controversial as the way it would be in some circles today. Jesus is already in this gospel made this point twice about birds. You know? Look how he cares for the birds, you know, the birds of the air. Or when he talks about a sparrow falling, will they not care even more for you? So he's been very clear that as valuable as animals may be, they're nothing compared to people. People are made uniquely in the image of God. And that means that there is a special care to be had for people. So, doesn't Jesus challenge us in the way he keeps things in perspective? I pray that that will be more and more typical of his followers. That those of us who are resting in him by faith and so united to him and indwelt by his spirit, that we will learn from him as he gives us this simple truth in the second half of verse 12, that the Sabbath is more honored by doing good than by not doing it. Sabbath rest is not fundamentally what you don't do. True biblical Sabbath rest is trusting in the character of God and acting in accord with it. How we keep the Sabbath commandments should be shaped by our obedience to the commandments to love God and to love our neighbor. Friend, if you're not a Christian, I wonder what the basis is in your own thinking for how valuable you would say people are. For us Christians, it's the fact that we understand that every person, including yourself, is made by God in his own image to display his character of holy love. This is the basis for valuing those society is tempted to think are simply useless and worthless, therefore. Those who are incapacitated by age or infirmity or those that too many around us simply take to be the property of others. Infants in their mother's womb. Uh, yeah, that, that person is not a matter of the property of the adult that that person is temporarily residing in. That infant is made in God's image. We know that each person is valuable because of who they are and whose they are. God's. Not because of what they can do or can contribute. So friends, our families need to be training grounds for mercy and patience. We're to teach our children to follow Jesus' example of mercy and love for those who are struggling. As Christians, we want to show something of the same mercy that we have known from God in Christ so richly. I should just deal briefly with one obvious question for us today, because we don't feel that the fourth commandment obliges us to cease all of our worldly efforts on Saturdays. At least I'm not aware of anybody in our congregation who thinks that. So, do we believe in the Sabbath today? Well, some Christians have said yes. And most of those have said that those obligations of rest have moved from Saturday to Sunday. Thus, the prevalence of so-called blue laws 
in so many parts of America until this last generation that have ensured that shops and businesses were closed on Sundays. And there are arguments to be made for those theologically and arguments to be made for those economically and in terms of care, especially for the poor who are made to work. Some Christians have said, no, we don't believe in the Sabbath. They cite Paul's attack in Galatians 4.10 on those who observe days and months and seasons and years, and Paul's defense of freedom of conscience on regarding some days as better than others in Romans 14.5, or even about the freedom to observe Sabbaths in Colossians 2.16. But it's a freedom. Our church is from a middling tradition, often called the Lord's Day tradition. This recognizes Sunday as a kind of Christian Sabbath, not to be confused with the Old Testament Sabbath, not recapitulating all the Old Testament restrictions, but pointing forward in the New Testament to the practice there of gathering together weekly for public worship. It's based on when the Christians met for their weekly corporate worship in the New Testament, and that was consistently on the first day of the week. The obvious significance of this morning being it was the same morning of the week in which Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. So it's a celebration of that resurrection and a pointing toward his return. And also, based on the reference by John in Revelation 1.10 to the Lord's Day and his assumption that that would be generally understood by his readers. If you're one of the people in this room that this is really piquing your interest, I would encourage you for more information, you can consult a large book edited by D.A. Carson called From Sabbath to Lord's Day. Or if you want a simpler summary, you can just look at our own church's statement of faith. Article 15 of the Christian Sabbath. We believe that the first day of the week is the Lord's Day or Christian Sabbath and is to be kept sacred to religious purposes. By the devout observance of all the means of grace, both private and public, and by preparation for that rest that remains for the people of God. It's a reference to Hebrews 4.9. But friends, this whole passage in Matthew 12 climaxes with the powerfully symbolic action Jesus took in verse 13. And this is the thing about Jesus. When people want to say he's just a teacher, well, you could say that if you don't read the whole thing. He does a lot of teaching, but the weird thing about Jesus is after he teaches, sometimes he does something that no other teacher could ever do. Verse 13 is one of those times. Here he didn't merely teach salvation, he demonstrated that the Messiah had come for mercy. Jesus restores the man's hand. Very much like up in chapter 9, verse 6, he'd shown his authority to forgive the paralytic sins by forgiving his sins and then visibly and immediately healing his body. So here, verse 13, look at verse 13. I, I, I love this. He's been reasoning with the Pharisees from Scripture and reason, and then he must just simply turn it over to the man and look and speak to him. I mean, when, when the Pharisees were going to hedge about the law with rules to say you don't work, they must have thought of some kind of early version of medical doctors where you had to do work to bring healing. But how can they criticize Jesus who is just going to speak all he's going to do is say one thing. He's going to tell the man to do what the man couldn't do, which was Jesus' normal way of healing. He tells the deaf, listen, the blind, look, dead Lazarus, get up and come here. So what's he going to do with the man with the withered hand? He's going to look at him. He's just going to say, stretch out your hand. 
because his words as divine words have generative power. Faco teachers tell you all words by their nature have generative power. That's all the health and wealth teachers. It's a lie from the pit of hell. It's the same confusion you see in the Garden of Eden. Satan trying to convince us we're just like God. That is not the nature of all speech. That is the unique nature of God's speech. Watch this. Become a chair. Okay, no air just became a chair. There was no generative power in my words, right? There is generative power in the words that God speaks. That's what makes him God. So what did Jesus do when he looked at that man and he said, stretch out your hand? What was that man able to do? He stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. Jesus didn't simply go around calling for mercy. He showed mercy. What a wonderful thing for our Savior to show in so many ways. How important for us to be characterized by mercy. The Messiah has come to bring us mercy and salvation. As we said in that opening statement that we read, He died on the cross specifically to bear the penalty for sins that you and I have deserved. And so God raised Him from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He presented the sacrifice to His heavenly Father who accepted on behalf of all of us who would repent of our sins and turn to Him. Do that today. Why spend another day apart from this God? Apart from this merciful Creator and Savior? Our acts of mercy can be little pictures of salvation, little pointers to it. Physical acts of mercy can often make way for real spiritual healing. We think of that wonderful statement in Hebrews 13, 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So we as a church want to help with good works of mercy by encouraging members in them in our daily lives, sometimes even by organizing to do them ourselves or to work with other groups that do. Pray that God make us increasingly a people marked by His mercy. Given what the Sabbath was for, it was actually especially appropriate for Jesus to heal on the Sabbath. So far was He from being wrong to do that. You think of David's words in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases. This dear man with the withered hand was one of the lost sheep of the house of Israel that Jesus had come to gather to himself. Here Jesus' mercy does make his yoke seem easy and his burden light, doesn't it? This is the Jesus that we're centered on here, friends. The Jesus who saves and delivers. And here sitting around you, you will find hundreds and hundreds of account, accounts of how he has done that very thing in our own lives. And we'd love to share them with you. Talk to us about it afterwards. We have no second service coming that we have to rush out for to clear out. You can just stand around and talk to people. You can ask them about their own experiences with Christ as further examples of God's mercy extended to us through His Savior, His Son. Finally, look with me at the contrast. We see it in verse 14. You see the contrast with our loving Messiah, don't you, in this final verse? But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Legalism and pride begat their normal offspring of hatred and death. Some who were the sharpest advocates of the Sabbath in this world would know nothing of real Sabbath rest. 
in this world or the world to come. They would never participate in the rest of God. They show that they're not followers of Christ, nor even neutral. I wonder, friend, is your life among your friends or family, your co-workers or your neighbors, does it give you pause about your own pride? Could your pride be hiding anything important from you? Like the pride of these Pharisees worked to hide the Messiah from them? So Jesus began to experience opposition an opposition that continues into our own day as that dear couple in Pakistan stands trial, as those women in Central Asia are sent off to be married to non-Christian husbands, as we read of our friends in China and India and Iran and Saudi Arabia experiencing such terrible persecution. Ironic that these teachers of God's law should so welcome their Messiah. May God help us not to be like them. Pray that we as a church would never oppose Jesus or his teaching. The Pharisees' response was to conspire together on the Sabbath. Surely that counted as work. <laughs> and to what end would their Sabbath conspiracies be? We read here that it was to destroy it seemed to many like it would be either him or their religion. Both could not continue on. And so once again we observe that as other times in Capernaum, even miracles don't convince unbelievers. They merely aroused a more desperate and implacable hostility. And this hostility that Matthew first mentions here would grow. And it would grow. And it would grow until finally they would succeed in destroying him. And their success would place Jesus in that sacrificial rest of another Sabbath that was coming between a Friday and a Sunday. which would obtain mercy for us all. Jesus' love would finally be expressed in the unlikeliest and the most surprising way to some, in the language of the law. I began by suggesting the difference in the opposition of law and love. That's only apparent. That's a child's play trick. There's no opposition between the good and the right. When God would express His love for us, when He would affect His goodwill toward us, how would He do it? Precisely by fulfilling all of His law, all that His law required, all of the justice against us in Christ, and in setting us free in His mercy. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would forgive us for having conceived of your mercy as a, 
a smaller thing than it really is. We see the price that you in your love have paid for us. We thank you for your love. We pray that you would give us your spirit to help us in every day you give us to imitate your mercy even as we've known it so richly from you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.